I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea when the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces, as one that is slain, thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arms. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. I have just read Psalm 89, verses 1 through 18. That was loud. <clears throat> People often complain that I yell from the pulpit, but I think it's really the, the microphone. I yell because I'm excited. I was a Marine. I'm hard of hearing. I'm going to get some hearing aids at the first of the year so I can uh, be an official member of the Prime Timers. I hope you'll uh, allow me to join. Sorry. Uh, this is a bad joke. Uh, I want to add my welcome to that of Pastor Mike Stroh. My name is Mike Traben, also named Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I also want to extend the welcome of our lead pastor, Sten Eric Armitage. He's on the East Coast going through a legal proceeding to change his name to Mike. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> no, fr no pressure from Stroh or me. Um, 
But uh, no, just kidding. He and his wife, Lisa, are celebrating um, an anniversary by taking a trip to the East Coast to spend some time with a couple of their adult daughters um, and then have some time together. And so we certainly hope that their time together is blessed. Um, Well, this morning we, as you've heard, and thank you, Vanessa, for the reading of Scripture, this morning we are looking at Psalm 89. The theme of our sermon is, is our reassurance and hope in Christ. This theme of this second week of Advent of peace comes from this Hebrew word that really connotes wholeness or completeness. And we can be reassured that our wholeness, our completeness is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we've chosen Psalm 89 as our scripture. Now the Psalms are poetic hymns. Most were originally intended to guide worshipers in articulating their cries of distress and their celebration of God's goodness and power. And they evolved to become carefully crafted liturgies written about typical human needs and used for services of worship. They, they formed an ancient service and prayer book, if you will. And they make up part of our scriptures and they inform our own daily life of devotion. Well, Psalm 89 is among the 13 of the Psalms that are described in the scriptures as a maskil. It's a term that doesn't have a certain meaning. It most closely aligns with a, a Hebrew word that means to have wisdom. And so scholars think that a maskil is a, is a song that denotes enforcing some lesson of wisdom or piety, some sort of message that is designed for the people's contemplation, a song or a poem that you and I should spend time thinking about. Well, the author is listed as Ethan the Ezraite, noted elsewhere in the scriptures as a, as a wise person compared to King Solomon. Psalm 89 is also categorized by scholars as a royal psalm. It's one of 10 of these royal psalms we find in the Psalter that are strategically positioned as a witness to the messianic hope, which looked for the consummation of God's kingship through his anointed one. The hoped-for Messiah of Old Testament Israel, the anointed one of Christ, who was born to the Virgin Mary and who ultimately gave his life for our salvation on the cross. Well, Psalm 89 appears to have been written as a response to a a crisis of faith among the community of God's people. The first half of the psalm, most of which we've heard this morning, is a, a song of praise. It praises God for his faithfulness. And that's where we're going to spend bulk of our time this morning. But the second half, if you've read it, and if if I hope you get a chance to read it later in the week, the second half expresses lament. The lament of a devoted people struggling to maintain their faith in the midst of a, a bleak contrast between the promised ideal of a perpetual Davidic kingship 
and their present reality of a disrupted monarchy. Scholars can't agree on when the psalm was written or which disruption of the monarchy occasioned the psalm, whether it was the division of the kingdom between north and south, whether it was one kingdom being carried off into exile into Babylon and the other being carried off into exile into Assyria. But that doesn't make it any less relevant for you and I today. To a people who are expectantly anticipating and hoping for God's kingship to manifest on earth as it is in heaven, the promises to David remain unfulfilled. These promises that the psalmist is lamenting, they remain unfulfilled for you and I today as they remained unfulfilled for Israel oh so long ago. We today still look for the restoration of the Davidic monarchy and the second coming of Christ. Christ who will come and end the humiliation of human failure. Christ who will end the strife between nations. Christ who will end once and for all the argument over the word of God. The prayer of the psalmist, friends, is the prayer of you and I as modern-day saints. It's a prayer for the kingdom to come. And as New Testament Christians anticipating the promised return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, we are all experiencing a gap between promise and reality. In minding this gap that we experience in this life, it, it's precarious. <clears throat> when we're younger and innocence and idealism abound, we, we can feel hopeful, and we should. In our youth, we're excited and, and even invincible, but the longer that we journey through life with its many painful lessons, uncertainty begins to creep in. And if we're not careful, we can become jaded and cynical and even hopeless. What doesn't seem to be turning out for you the way that you expected it should or hoped that it would? You've been a devoted follower of Christ, but life is still a struggle to find basic provision or even just fulfillment in life for some. You've maybe faithfully parented your children according to the prevailing Christian wisdom, but your children have strayed from the way. And it breaks your heart. You've lived a temperate life, and yet bodies are still ravaged by illness and disease. You see, we as Christians, we hopefully purpose in our daily lives every day to keep the promises, and yet our communities <clears throat> excuse me, still struggle under the weight of things like interpersonal conflict, injustice, poverty, natural disasters, political strife, and warfare. That's why we sing this song. Lord Jesus, come. 
So the question I hope to spend some time looking at this morning is where do we look and what can we do to find reassurance and to find the anchors of our faith when we're confronted with our own contrasts between present reality and promised ideal. Our focus this morning is on the first half of the psalm, and I want to draw out three truths to keep in mind in three parts of the scripture that we can anchor our faith. Anchors designed to hold a ship in place, not to drift in the currents, Sea anchors and drogues deployed by vessels to help them be more controllable in the storm. And friends, that's what the scriptures can do for us in these difficult seasons. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood and that in nothing we may be displeasing to your majesty through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as I stated earlier, the, the majority of this psalm, 52 verses, is a call that comes out of despair from God's people. But it's important to note that it begins with worship. As we look at the first four verses, it's a, an enthusiastic resolution to, to sing praise to the Lord for his loyal love and faithfulness. Look at verses 1 and 2, and I'm reading from the New English Translation. The psalmist writes, I will sing continually about the Lord's faithful deeds. To future generations, I will proclaim your faithfulness. For I say, loyal love is permanently established. In the skies, you set up your faithfulness. I find verse 2 to be the most compelling verse of this psalm. It's the centerpiece of my sermon, if you will. And it's our first anchoring point. You see, in spite of all of the complaints they have about God's promises not being fulfilled in them, accusations to God about not keeping his promises, it starts with these words, that I will proclaim your faithfulness, for I say loyal love is permanently established. In the skies, you set up your faithfulness. The opening voice of this poem is, is one of confident praise. God is a God of loyal love and faithfulness. These two words in the Hebrew occur in the psalm seven times each. God is a God of loyal love and faithfulness. He's rock-solidly reliable. God will never fail his people. In spite of what you're experiencing, in spite of what you feel, in spite of what you fear, God will never fail his people. And that's our first anchor point, friends. That worship, we must worship the Lord for his loyal love and faithfulness. As we go on to verses 3 and 4, the, the psalmist quotes to the Lord, quotes to the people 
the Lord's own confirmation of his solemn promise to David that his, his seed and his throne will endure forever. He says, the Lord said, quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've made a promise on oath to David, my servant. I will give you an eternal dynasty and establish your throne throughout future generations. Earlier in the year, we did a study through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We saw that in 2nd Samuel that God had promised peace for Israel through the governance of David and the line that would follow him. This promise came by the Israelites to be read, and rightly so, to be rightly read as the assurance of, of God's rule over the whole earth, manifested through his chosen people of Israel and his appointed line of kings from the line of David. And for Israel, Yahweh's invisible rule over the whole earth and humankind was, was incarnated in David and his sons until things went off the rails. While they ruled, their political rule was this visible symbol of, of God's absolute governance over the whole earth. And so, hence the lament of the second half of the psalm. God, what you promised has not come to pass. The kingdom is divided. We've been carried off into exile. We're taunted by our enemies. We're mocked by those who are your foes. Well, how often do you and I despair because our understanding of, of God's plan isn't coming to pass in our own lives? And Israel wasn't wholly wrong, but they had a, an expectation, if you will, of what it would look like. What performance was required? What timeline would it occur on? How costly or not costly might it be? How often do we despair because our understanding of these things is skewed? God's invisible rule over the whole of the earth and humankind manifest more perfectly in the first advent of Christ. And Christ having triumphed over sin and death and disarming all the rulers and authorities at the cross, Christ's invisible rule over all of creation continuing at the right hand of the Father, that is good news, friends. That is the gospel. That is God's promise being worked out in earthly time and in eternal time. And as the church, we're called, we are invited to be a, a part of this, a, a visible manifestation of, of God's rule. And so we can rejoice that we're co-rulers with Christ, in spite of what we're experiencing. And why is that? Because we can be certain that our God is the cosmic king who rules firmly over the cosmos and the chaos. I don't know if you had a chance to read the epistle this week, but our sister Deborah Wampler wrote a really great piece, a smart piece, 
about chaos and control. I invite you to take a look at that. But, but God is the cosmic king who rules firmly over the chaos. And that's what the psalmist begins to say here in verses 5. Let's take a look at verses 5 through 7. He says, O Lord, the heavens praise your amazing deeds, as well as your faithfulness in the angelic assembly. For who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? A God who is honored in the great angelic assembly and more awesome than all who surround him. You see, God is sovereign in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm is what the psalmist is reminding us. That, that all of these forces that seem outside of our control, that forces that we can't even imagine, that God is sovereign over that as well. Nothing in the heavens, the psalmist reminds us, has as much authority and power as our God. He goes on to talk about how God is sovereign over the realm of the physical creation. Picking up in verse 8, he says, O Lord, God of heaven's armies, who is strong like you? O Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. He's recalling this image of a God who's a, a military warrior in charge of innumerable angelic warfighters. And he's saying there's nothing in the heavens, nothing in the spiritual realm, no amount of the spiritual forces that are opposed to God's will can prevail against you, God. And so he draws our attention down to the creation. In verse 9, he says, You rule over the proud sea. When its waves surge, waves surge, you calm them. You crushed the proud one. And killed it with your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. In this ancient Hebrew culture, the, the sea and the waters were viewed as evil, chaos, something to be feared. This name that you heard read this morning when Vanessa read the scripture, Rahab, it's a, it's a mythical monster of chaos. Later, it's equated with Egypt as a symbol of this earthly power. And he reminds us that, that God has calmed all of it. God has brought all of it into order. None of it is more powerful than God. He's brought order out of chaos. And he's produced the world and all that is in it. And he delivers his people from their enemies. He's delivered Egypt, or excuse me, Israel from Egypt, and he'll deliver his people again from the enemies of the kingdom. He says in verse 11, the heavens belong to you as does the earth. You made the world and all it contains. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. Your arm is powerful and your hand strong, your right hand is victorious. Again, the psalmist is reminding the hearer that there's nothing on earth that can overcome God. There is nothing on earth that will thwart his promises. God, who created the North Pole and the South Pole, that, that keep the earth in balance, 
The two most prominent land features in Israel, Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, not big by our standards, but they were also places of pagan worship. He's reminding the hearers that even those places call out to God in worship. God brings order out of chaos, and God delivers his people from their enemies. Which brings us to verse 14, our second anchor point that The psalmist writes, he says, equity and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loyal love and faithfulness characterize your rule. You see, God's powerful rule is not based on capriciousness or a corrupt character, but it's based on righteousness and justice. It's his unquestionable character. His loyal love and his faithfulness that the psalmist reminds us, these are the things that undergird his power and might. Whatever God does, he does out of loyal love and his faithfulness to his promises. Regardless of our expectations of what God should do and when he should do it, whatever the Lord chooses to do, whichever way he chooses to go, It's right, and it's just, and it's his faithful love that precedes him. And so as we come to the end of the psalm here, we're reminded to to exercise faith and to find joy and strength by worshiping and trusting in this cosmic king. This is where we find our reassurance and faith, friends. The psalmist tells us that the results of our reassurance of a God whose righteous rule is rooted in loyal love are are these things. He says, how blessed are the people who worship you. When we worship God, he blesses us. O Lord, they experience your favor. They rejoice in your name all day long. He says, those who are blessed with the fruit of the Spirit, the response is worship. And I want to offer friends that if, oftentimes, if you don't feel like worshiping, when you engage in it, nonetheless, the blessing is the fruit of the Spirit. So God's calling us to this place of worship. And he says they experience the favor of God. I think the way that Vanessa's translation, King James, Vanessa, right? Says they they hear the sound of of worship. They're hearing the noise of other worshipers and they're, they're drawn into it. It's part of why we're called to be a part of a community that gathers on Sunday to worship. You don't have to raise your hand, but I suspect that some of you didn't feel like being here this morning. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I don't feel like being here this morning. Not today, but. We experience the favor of God, friends, when we participate in worship. And so we need to ask ourselves, we need to pause here and say, well, what is the favor of God? What does it mean to experience the favor of God? Because I think sometimes what we think is the favor of God might not be God's idea of his favor. What do you think that's meant to look like for you? 
What do you think God has promised you? Some of us can be lulled into thinking that God owes us something. And friends, God owes us nothing more than what he's already done for us in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. God's promise to you and me as yet to be fulfilled is something so glorious, so wonderful, so peaceful, so hopeful that you and I can't even fully comprehend it. You see, God's favor is that he's faithful to his promises. Back to verse 2 where the psalmist started. God's favor is you and I knowing with steadfastness, with reassurance, with confidence that God is faithful to his promises, regardless of what we experience. And so he says that, that people like this, they rejoice in your name all day long, he says in verse 16. And they are vindicated by your justice, for you give them your splendor and strength. By your favor, we are victorious. We are vindicated by God's righteousness and justice that was worked out at the cross by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are to rejoice in the name of Jesus continually. And the favor that we'll receive, the reassurance that God is faithful to his promises. You see, whatever strength that Israel had, whatever strength that you and I have, is because of our association with God and his favor upon us. And so it's, as we come to the end of our portion of scripture here, we have a third anchor point. That we can take confidence in the protection that God provides to us. He says, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. You see, you and I need to have confidence in the protection that we have in God. The confidence that we can have in the work that's been done by Christ. Because when the world feels like such a chaotic and precarious place, doing what you and I can do to grow our sense of safety and security that helps shield us from feelings of helplessness and hopelessness that we might experience, like that's a natural part of who we are. And I'm not saying that it's entirely bad. But at times we can place a disproportionate of faith in the shields that we've constructed for ourselves, our confidence in our physical health, the shield that we carry around that is our gifts and our accomplishments, our appearance, our possessions, our bank accounts, our children and their successes and their behavior. Our political parties, our stereotypes, the emotional compartments that we construct to stuff all the feelings away so that we can put on a good face and a good image. But I want to circle us all the way back to verse 2. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, your love has always been our lives' foundation. Your fidelity has been the roof over our world. The whole sermon, for me, grew out of this passage, this idea that we carry shields around, 
that we feel like that we have to wield to protect ourselves from the chaos and the difficult world around us. And I'm not suggesting that we are unwise and imprudent in how we are to live our lives, but I, I am suggesting that we need to be careful to remember that who is the ultimate shield. I recently had a new roof put on my house, and it gives me a lot of confidence. I feel really good about my house. I've lived there 11 years. We've, over the years, we've repaired and replaced a lot of critical components of our house over the years. I used to ask my wife repeatedly, do you think we, do you think we bought the right house? Had foundation issues, plumbing issues, cracked drywall, leaky pipes, HVAC that I've had to replace twice. Um, so when I replace my roof, it makes me feel really good, really secure. And that's not a bad thing, and it's a blessing to own a home. Don't get me wrong, and to have a roof over one's head. So many worry about that. But my point, friends, is that these earthly things are not where our earthly confidence should lie. They're not the ultimate places in which to deposit our reassurance, our confidence, and our faith. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews defines faith as being sure, and I would offer, and reassured. To be sure of what we hope for and to be certain of what we do not see. And that, friends, is why reflecting in this Advent season is so helpful to our souls. Because God's desire is that we can live in the light of Christ's Advent. Celebrating his first and maintaining a posture of faithful anticipation for the second. And though we may find it hard to reconcile some dark providences that we experience with the the goodness and truth of God. We should hold firmly to his promises, knowing that his, his truth is inviolable. And in the same way that the psalmist leads this covenant community in a prayer of lament before God, we should plead in prayer before God ourselves. No matter how serious the situation, there is always matter for praise and thanksgiving. Well, the community's lament in the remainder of this psalm, verses 37 to 51, it's a, it's a litany of accusation and questions for God. But the psalm abruptly turns from verse 51 right into 52 with these words. He says, the Lord deserves praise forevermore. Amen and amen. We agree. We agree that people respond. And so may we agree with the psalmist and all of Israel. God's steadfast, loyal love is the foundation of our lives, friends. And his faithfulness is the roof over our head. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Merciful Lord, the comforter and teacher of your faithful people. Increase in your church the desires which you have given and confirm the hearts of those who hope in you by enabling us to understand the depth of your promises. That all of us as your adopted daughters and sons may behold with eyes of faith and patiently wait for the light which as yet you do not openly manifest 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us stand together. Thank you.